Today's conversation is brought to you by Bless Your Pastor. Pastors today need to feel people's love and support. There's no better time to do this than Pastor Appreciation Month in October. At blessyourpastor.org, we have three easy steps to help your church show and share love for your pastor. Plus, if your church completes the three steps, we will give your senior pastor access to free and discounted retreat and vacation opportunities, including an opportunity to apply for a $300 scholarship to attend a family life marriage retreat. Learn more at blessyourpastor.org. What is the culture of our church? And is this culture one where the non-believing world, when they come in, they will leave saying, wow, what a great God. Not what great music, not, hey man, that sermon was, but man, what a great God that he could take people from all these different lived experiences that actually live in a common community and they come and they break bread together, they worship together. I know that they vote differently. I know that they live in different communities and neighborhoods, if you will, but they are really striving to follow Christ together. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. It's wonderful to have D.A. Horton join us for this conversation. Damon is a theologian, professor, pastor, and author, and he sits on the board of the NAE. He has a particular expertise in the area of global and urban ministry. And today we talk about how theology bears upon our lives, helps to make culture, and addresses our deepest needs, especially in this moment of considerable complexity. Damon, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I followed your work and your ministry for some time, and it's really just an honor to connect with you. Thank you. It's my privilege and my joy as well. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, Damon, so I'd like to begin by asking a bit about your background, how you ended up so invested in theology, mission, cultural assessments, and where you are right now. You know, honestly, it's uh, the Lord's providence. I mean, where I was uh, born and raised, um, born in Kansas City, Kansas, uh, just left of Missouri. Uh, the Kansas City is kind of divided by two different states, if you will. Two mm-hmm. separate cities, two separate states. Um, but just being born in the environment I was in, uh, just even looking at the trajectory of my ancestry and my uh, grandma and grandpa and how their families migrated northern from Mexico into the United States. But then also by the time I was born, uh, the neighborhood that I was uh, cultivated and raised in was predominantly African-American. And so being the only Chicano in the community and then also having friends and just now growing up in the crack epidemic and right in the middle of the hood, like all these nuances, um, you know, were amazing components to the way that God has been writing my story. And so uh, little did I know at the time that, you know, theology, missiology, culture, evangelism, discipleship, all these components um, God would be using strategically in my life to call me to salvation. But then also uh, he's just put an unceasing grief in my heart to be able to communicate his truth to people, no matter where they are in their journey in life, so that I can prayerfully give them content that they can wrestle with, mull on, and then hopefully have follow-up conversations with me 
that would lead them uh, to uh, really understanding who God truly is, what the work of Christ has secured for those who embrace him. And so I never wanted to be caught off guard. So I just mm-hmm. began to uh, just look at the different structures and rhythms in, in our community and began to pray when the Lord brought me to faith before I turned 16. Lord, how can I be your mouthpiece in the midst of all that is going on around me? And then the Lord just began to open doors to travel to uh, different cities and then eventually different nations and still being a lifelong learner. Uh, it's, it really em- encourages my heart to see what God is doing in and through me. Hmm. Damon, your, your life, your story kind of encapsulates this fascinating time that we're in, in America. Our country is simultaneously becoming more diverse, but in that diversity, uh, divided, uh, religiously pluralistic, but secularized, globally connected, um, but we're working out our identity as a nation. And within this, the church is trying to figure out its mission, much less live it out. So, so from your perspective as a pastor on college campuses in these different cultural contexts, how are you assessing what we're seeing? Yeah, you know, um, looking at starting all things with just an evaluation of scripture. Um, the Lord obviously is never caught off guard by any of the things that we see in paradigm shifts, uh, rhythms of ethnicity, language, diversity, population. And so I think understanding how uh, it was always God's heart for redemption as it re- resolves for people from all nations, all ethnicities, languages, and tribes. I think just even within the American project, the way that God's providence would work is that he has brought the nations to the neighborhoods in the United States of America. I think as it relates for us, um, it's still that wrestling with the uh, pseudo idea that America has always been a Christian nation when technically on paper, we never have been. But at the same time, our populace uh, has never corresponded, you know, holistically. Yes, this is who we are, what we are, and we will embody the kingdom ethics of the word of God as communicated by the Christian faith. And so I think the Lord knew, uh, even in this time in redemptive history, that he would have a remnant of people that would uh, not exchange worship for the true and living risen Lord uh, for a personal idol with the name of Jesus. And I think that is what, uh, in in America, those who are uh, more so aligned with Protestantism, if you will, because that's where the majority of my context and conversation is, is really kind of wrestling with, man, am I really following the second member of the Trinity, or am I following this idol that I have created to protect my peace, to protect uh, my comfort, and calling this idol Jesus? And so when we look at that in the conversations that I have, uh, really pursuing uh, who Christ truly is and what he has called us and commissioned and commanded us to do as his followers, that's when we begin to kind of peel back the layers of this mythological Jesus that we may have manufactured in our own mind and to then be looking at the concrete evidence in scripture of who he truly is. And he just leads and calibrates our heart. And in my flesh, I don't like to be corrected. I don't like to um, have to admit, if you will, uh, where I have fallen into sin, where I need to make things right. And so when I think about that and multiply that by the millions of professing followers of Christ, now you begin to see all these complexities that boil down to basically my individual response to a collectivist reality. And I think that's the unique components of even culture 
with Christians in America. Some of us were groomed in environments where it's more individualistic. So we have basically clicked ourselves with uh, tribes, if you will. But as the convictions of the tribes either drift uh, more fanatic or become less or progressive, if you will, from the original, uh, you know, founding things that they agreed upon. Uh, now we begin to see the individualism really at the core versus a collectivism. So people will drop whatever group they were once affiliated with if the group is not marching in the direction that they wanted to march. So now we have these fractures of tribes that are competing for pole position, not just culturally in the uh, United States of America, but even in local churches, even with little local cliques and things like that. And so again, I think that's where we have to step back and understand, you know, what is a genuine circle of Christian fellowship. There's diversity. There is uh, not just diversity ethnically and linguistically, but even perspectives, even mm -hmm. politically, economically. And at the same time, we as the people of God need to understand that sometimes those in the body of Christ, the only thing we may have in common with them is our profession that Jesus is Lord. And that may be kind of the end of it. And then from there, because of lived experiences, environments we were raised in, our responses to the culture may look different, but we are still part of the same faith. And I think that if we had deeper, meaningful relationships that are tested through conflict resolution, then we will see less fragmentation and more fellowship, less cliques and more circles of people, you know, coming together and marching on as Christian soldiers. But it's going to take time. It's going to take conflict resolution. It's going to take the crucifixion of our pride. And it's going to be uh, the those who really have soft ears and soft hearts to the word of God through the Holy Spirit that indwells us, that we can really have a genuine kingdom uh, redemptive representation versus one that is fractured and just basically caught in the milieu of political spectrum. Mm. Damon, what, I want to pull one um, thread that you've uh, put out for us. This individualism versus collectivism. Um, I think in many of our contexts, we can get some sense of what the individualism means, what that looks like. But what, what do you mean when you're saying a collectivist perspective? W draw that out. Give us a little bit of an imagination of what that actually looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, it really is taking uh, myself as an individual and deferring what I may feel that I have a right to have. Uh, that I could, within my means, you know, go and pursue. But if it only benefits me and it doesn't benefit the group that I am connected to, uh, for example, my family, if my wife says tonight she is going to prepare a meal, my kids are going to help, and we're going to sit down together as a family, and we are going to share a meal, it's not just about the food. It's not just about sufficing the, the issue of hunger and having good nourishment. It's about the experience. That food is a part of it, but it's the communication. It's the check-in that we do as a family. Give us a highlight and a low light of your day. What is a concern on your heart? How are you feeling as it relates to something that our family's been going through? So it's about this experience. Food is a part of it but so is transparency, so is vulnerability, so is safety. But let's just say that I'm hungry and I have money in my bank account and I want to stop it in and out and get me a double-double uh, animal style with a fry and a vanilla shake. Well, I could do that and that's perfectly fine, but I can also defer my individual rights and I have the means to purchase that double-double 
and all of it and eat it. And I don't have to tell my family, but I go home and I have no appetite. So I'm not going to be as participatory. There's not a hunger. There's going to be a slowness and, and a slothfulness in my move and approach to the conversation because I've already eaten. I've already had my fill while everyone else purposefully stayed dedicated to the goal of let's break fast together. Let's share this meal. So that's where I, as an individual, put myself before the group, but I'm still connected to the group. I still engage with the group. But I am showing the superficial commitment to the group because I'm always going to preface my individual desires. And so I think that even from a, a larger perspective, you know, when it comes to just the different nuances of American life, not all of us have the same story, the same perspective, even as a Latino. I am not the voice for Latinos and Latinas. I'm not because we don't have a monolithic shared experience in life. So I think individuality should never be erased, but it should never be exalted above the reality of the collectivist whole that we are a part of. And as followers of Christ, we are not just part of uh, a Protestant perspective in the global church. It is the global church of Jesus Christ. So I am one of potentially millions of those who have genuinely been regenerated by God, the Holy Spirit, that are fighting their flesh and seeking to walk in alignment with uh, the Great Commission and, and the scriptures as we live, move, and have our being for the glory of Christ. And so that's where I have to make intentional efforts to think what can be a benefit for me, but may be harmful for others within the body of Christ. And so that's where I think, going back to a seminary professor um, by the name of Joe Williamson years ago, a Calvary Theological Seminary said, you know, Christian liberties are really to be enjoyed by those who are spiritually mature. Mm -hmm. And if you throw a fit to basically enjoy your Christian liberty, knowing that it could lead other more immature Christians into sin, then you're really not mature. And you're the one that needs to be refrained. And you're the weaker brother, though you're professing to be the mature one. And so that really stuck hold to my heart. And I was like, I need to do better and not putting myself first, thinking through the nuances of the local church, but then also the global church and trying to walk in that balance where I don't lose my individuality but I never sacrificed the collective whole for the benefit of just myself. So I think that's where the individualist versus the collectivist, some of us were raised in collectivist culture. Some of us were raised in individualistic culture. And in America, we come together and there is a clash. But the clash basically just says, how is the Holy Spirit going to polish and smooth our rough edges together so that now we can have a more seamless unity in faith? Mm. You know, this... This theological theme that you're drawing together of, of course, we have individual dignity and in the American context, this comes out in the language of rights and individual dignity, freedom, liberties, but the call uh, to simultaneously hold that truth of individuals created the image of God, yet individuals redeemed to live in communities. Mm -hmm. So, we may have individual dignity, but we are not supposed to live individually with right. that dignity right. if i'm hearing you and there's this kind of rich response of the dynamics of giving up our rights of humbling mm -hmm. ourselves of expressing our needs fighting against the consumerism that would feed into the individual wants and needs and uh, preferences um and yet this call to what is going to help the common life that we share that's really challenging when we do have these differences, and, and you've talked about 
ethnic conciliation or kingdom ethnicity that is a way of framing how to approach some of these differences. Explore that with me a little bit. Yeah, the idea of um, just ethnic conciliation um, that I've uh, taught on for some years now really is kind of a, a, a more response to the idea of a racial reconciliation. And so it's not uh, eradicating uh, the, the material aspects of the racial structures that we inherited in this particular uh, you know, hemisphere of, of, uh, of the world. But, but it also is understanding the fact that if, if humans, out of our own imagination, uh, created these racial categories and structures, well, what is something that is God-given that basically we can understand is a blessing because he's given it to us uh, that helps formulate our identity. And if it's something that will just be for this life, that's one thing. But if it's something that we can even see a distinguishing characteristic in the uh, in, in eternity, in the city of God, then it's something that we should really begin to not ignore nor idolize, but affirm in this life. And so when I look at the concept of ethnicity, especially in scripture, it's it's different than um, the modern discourse, because again, the racial structures that we have during the colonial era, you ain't going to find it in the Bible, because again, this came after the canon was closed and it was birthed out of the human imagination with a superiority complex woven into the framework of the foundation. But ethnicity, as it could be defined loosely as culture, linguistics, uh, ancestral, common heritage, but also um, religious profession and things of that nature, but also identity and geography, when you began to kind of bring that montage together, we see that some of these aspects, uh, especially of ethnicity, is something that is given to us by God, and it is going to be present in the eternal state. Even in Revelation, John sees the city of God, and he actually identifies, distinguishes the different nations and the leaders of the nations who will bring their honor and glory from their particular ethnic culture. He's, they will they will bring cultural artifacts into the city of God. So there will be products of grace from every ethnicity that is represented in the city of God by those who have embraced Christ as savior, that we are going to have cultural artifacts from our ethnic people groups in the city of God. So these things are God's design. So thinking about that idea should now just eradicate any type of superiority complex because it puts everyone on equal playing field. Because when we think about the concept of reconciliation, it means to be once again conciled. But then we have to understand conciliation is not really a, a common term in our language. It was centuries ago, but it's no longer normal use. And so I define conciliation as the absence of animosity, distrust, and hostility. The only time you're going to find that in the human story is in the garden. And in the garden, we see our human ancestry's first parents. Acts 17, 26, Genesis 3, 20 tells us Eve's the mother of all living. Adam is the one man that every ethnicity and every bloodline derives back from him in that union of that one man, that one woman. So when we look at that, we understand that they were consiled together as man and wife, but then also with God individually with the man and the woman, but then they were both individually consiled to God. So now after the fall, we have this idea of reconciliation. We lost conciliation, but if all of us as humans find our first common set of parents as Adam and Eve, that means every human from every ethnicity, language, tribe, and tongue is a candidate for reconciliation because we have conciliation in our first parents. So that's why 
Evangelism should be a natural rhythm for every genuine follower of Christ. That's why discipleship should be a natural rhythm for every follower of Christ, because everywhere we go, we are living apologists for this amazing God who created this ethnic diversity out of his genius for his glory. And when we come together with a diversity of languages, perspectives, lived experiences, but a common profession that Jesus is our Lord, we are literally showing what ethnic conciliation that is practically already our reality because of the finished work of Christ, how it is something that can be embodied and materialized versus racial reconciliation, that if there's not multiple races and there is no point of conciliation for the multiple races, especially in American history, then we're really trying to grasp onto the wind and we're never going to achieve any goal. But ethnic conciliation, that's where the body of Christ embodies it. And that's part of the reason why the Great Commission is something that fuels our drive for evangelism and discipleship, because we are to make disciples of uh, ethnicities. And so if God brought our nations to the neighborhoods, we should be out there seeking to make Christ known because we are his aroma mm. with all of our cities, suburbs, exurbs now with the stench of death, they need the aroma of Christ. So that's where that whole idea of conciliation, ethnic conciliation, I believe is a strong call from our savior for us to embody. Mm. And that's a really glorious and challenging vision that you're setting for us. How can a local community, whether it's a local church or uh, a group of Christians in a particular community, how can people embodied live that out in some practical ways. And I'm intrigued by your life experience as you've described yourself as kind of a lone Chicano family within a, uh, a black community. That's a different dynamic than say Absolutely. a homogenous white suburb or an Asian American uh, community within an urban setting. You, you, you have a very particular life experience um, that I, I feel it might be an interesting angle on addressing this question of practically, how does this work itself out? Yeah, and I think um, the way that we have to really uh, ground the conversation is our understanding of culture. I think that if we all understand that uh, every human is capable of producing culture, I like uh, Dr. Bruce Ashford's definition of culture, where basically uh, anytime we as humans interact with the natural world or with each other, we're creating culture. And so by creating culture, um, that means when there's a difference in perspective, uh, whether it is worship music, whether it is the, you know, the, the, the dynamics of the person preaching. Uh, you know, if we want it monotone or if we want charisma, uh, you know, all these preferences need to be put uh, not on the front, but on the back burners. And we really need to begin to have genuine communication about what is the culture of our church? And is this culture one where the non-believing world, when they come in, they will leave saying, wow, what a great God, not what great music, not, hey, man, that sermon was, but man, what a great God that he could take people from all these different lived experiences that actually live in a common community and they come and they break bread together. They worship together. I know that they vote differently. I know that they live in different communities and neighborhoods, if you will, but they are really striving to follow Christ together. That is the perspective that culture and the way that we shape it and create it, grounding it in the main components of our faith in Christ, in scripture, but also then having an open hand to understand how can people that 
are in the body of Christ communicate, man, I don't feel like I belong because of dot, dot, dot. And if enough people are communicating, this makes me feel like I can't be involved or I feel left out. Then what can we as a whole do now to not just acquiesce to just, you know, five or six people, but if this is something that's preventing even followers of Christ from receiving a robust fellowship experience where they can understand and they don't feel on the outside, they don't feel like a second class citizen in the kingdom of God because of their experience in the local church, then what are we going to do when non-believers, you know, engage us? And uh, they're like, man, I don't feel welcome there. So again, what I don't want people to hear is that we bow to whatever people want and we give them what they want. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that, let me give it an example. In our church plant in Long Beach, one of the things that was a conviction of our leadership is that we would have a member of our congregation uh, that spoke another language other than English. Uh, it could be men and women. They could uh, pray in their first language. It'd be Brazilian, Portuguese, Spanish, Tagalog, you name it. Um, we had different languages represented. And what we would communicate to people, whether they were visitors, whether they were um, you know, members, that... The reason we have our members pray in different languages is to remind us, specifically as Americans, the city of God, heaven is not America 2.0. There will be other languages present in heaven, just like there are other languages present in the global church today. And if we felt left out, and if we felt othered and marginalized for a 30-second prayer two times, then imagine what all those who don't speak English as a first language feel from the very moment that they stepped foot on this campus, which was a high school campus in North Long Beach, the preaching of the word, the singing of the songs, everything, announcements, it's all in a language that they may not be completely fluent in. So rather than saying you can't engage with our church until you learn English, rather it's how can we meet them where they are, even within our own membership, let alone the community at large, so that we are prepared. We're utilizing all the tools in our tool belt that Jesus has given because our grounded understanding of the local church is out of Ephesians 4, where Jesus is the one that sends gifts to the local church. The gifts are the men and the women who have embraced him as savior. So every follower of Christ in every local church is a gift of Jesus sent to that local church to do what? shape culture that does not compromise the truth of God's word, but yet it does not marginalize even the non-believing world that if they were to walk in, that they would feel not that their sin is uh, sidestepped, not that their ethnicity is triumphed over others, but rather God desires to see the nations know Jesus. And if the nations are here, then we are in this constant flux of seeking to shape a culture that shows God's heart for his followers to make disciples of every ethnicity that he sends to their community and their church. So that's where creating culture takes conversations. It takes time of praying together. Hmm. It takes that opportunity of saying, I can let this go because it's a preference, but it's not something that's mandated by scripture. So we can sing that second chorus in Korean. We can sing that 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 song in Spanish if that is relevant to the neighborhood that our church is located in. So I think that if we have those conversations and we don't go outside the guardrails of scripture, it's less about acquiescing to the world 
It's more about saying our God has a passion to see the nations come to the cross of Christ. Hmm. So let us do everything to not compromise his message, but let us examine our methods to see if the culture that we are living and embodying is truly a place where healing is taking place. And we don't feel like a social club, but hmm. we feel like people that need Jesus and we're in a process and a journey together. Hmm. That's uh, really a de demand of love. I mean, to love another that it puts their needs above our own for the sake of the mission of Jesus to make disciples of all the nations. It's such a compelling picture for the reason why God would call us his new family and why we're called Absolutely. to be brothers and sisters. We're called to be expanding who we consider to be family, to be kin. And, and that is challenging, but you've given us a very particular imagination for what that mm -hmm. could look like in our various communities. Amen. Amen. And I also have to raise up this issue when you say culture uh, making, uh, that you're not only a scholar, a pastor, a theologian, you are also a hip hop artist. <laughs> and when I think about our culture now and culture making, hip hop has really come to the fore as a very powerful movement of protest, of articulation, of, of identity of uh, assessment of what's going on. It not only assess culture, but it's actually in the process of making culture. Um, but I'm not a hip hop artist. <laughs> you are. So what's going on in hip hop culture that is so compelling at this moment? And what do we as the people of God need to be paying attention to? Yeah, I think uh, what's going on in hip hop is, uh, you know, what's been going on since its very inception 50 years ago. Um, it was, you know, created out of the imagination of people, predominantly black and brown in the South Bronx, that were looking to communicate frustration and their sociological analysis. Uh, what a lot of people don't seem to understand is it, it could get, you know, it can get broad brushed because of the commercialization of hip hop, you know, predominantly within the last, you know, 30 of the 50 years uh, of its existence. But at the same time, when you listen to the lyrics uh, of a lot of the contents of artists that are really saying something, you will listen to an ethnography. You're listening to a sociological analysis. You're listening to storytelling. You're listening to the imagination of people that have life experiences and they're seeking to communicate it to make other people aware of what life looks like in the environment that they're from so it's composite storytelling so when you look at it from that vantage point um you know it's not championing um all of the things that contradict the word of god at the same time uh again the approach to culture that we have um i love again how dr ashford puts it in his book every square inch is that I can look at uh, all cultural artifacts created by the imagination of any human from any place and time. But as I look at it, I can identify first what is true. What is the truth claims that actually are true in the contents of this cultural artifact? Just because I affirm that there's truth doesn't mean that I accept the entirety of the message because after I confirm that there is truth here, now I must also identify where is the misdirection that is grounded in sin. So just because there's a truth claim and it's true doesn't mean that everything is true that they're communicating, but there will come a point 
when they will lead their audience to the direction of their idol rather than Christ. So that's where I want to walk with them in truth. But then when they stop proclaiming truth and they seek to move forward towards their idol, I can't walk any further. But now that I've identified where their message is misdirected by sin, now I can work to redirect it towards Christ. So it's this approach of, I want to start every gospel conversation I have with Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. If I start with the fall of humanity, I'm missing the Imago Dei completely. Hmm. So when I begin with the Imago Dei, that means that every human has the potential to communicate truth. Not everything that we do is bad. But even though we all have been marred because of our universal fall into sin, it means that not everything we say is truthful and right. And so that's where I approach hip hop like I do academics. It's a conversation. It's a conversation. And I'm intaking the data and the perspective of another, aligning it and grounding it in categories with substance and then evaluating and then responding. And so, you know, that was the whole reason why I began following the lead of the Lord to inject my testimony, inject theology into the lyrics, but still have cultural idiom have witty punchlines, and to really see it as a craft of expression that can be leveraged for evangelism and discipleship. And at the same time, not take away the ethnography or the sociological analysis, because I live in the same fallen world as those that have been impacted by hip-hop culture. And so what I want to do is tell a different story, tell a story of redemption that has to include the fall, but it also has to include the work of Christ. But I also recognize that not every song that may last three minutes has to have a sitcom approach. Like back in the day, like we would watch the TGIF on Friday nights and it's like the same, you know, plot trajectory. It opens with something silly, but then it turns in a moment when something dramatic happens and then dun, 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 and we go to commercial, come back and the quandary would be resolved. Everybody laughs in the closing scene and then the credits roll. Every mm. life problem solved in 22 minutes. Mm. Every song that a Christian composes is not going to offer a robust, exhaustive response to every broken nuance of life in this side of eternity in three minutes. So I think that's where we as Christians, specifically in evangelicalism, which I am on the conservative side of evangelicalism, need to have a higher view of art in the sense that we focus on technical precision. And I love how Francis Schaeffer would shape this years ago, that we would look at technical precision, that we would evaluate and think, wow, although I do not agree with the message, the way that this artist constructed this, just, just amazing precision. There's this, you know, chiatic reality to the way they structured their verse. So when you look at the technical precision, you don't forsake the artistry. And I think that's where a lot of conversation with the church and the world, especially when it comes to the arts, is like this. We're saying one thing, they're saying another, but we create our own alternative economy and we throw the term Christian on any art medium. And then we think it's automatically godly, whether it's good or not art. And so I think that's where we have to be a little bit less romantic and more realistic and approach it with dividing the sacred or removing the sacred secular divide because Jesus is Lord over everything, whether people embrace it or not, he's still Lord. So his Lordship carries me into evaluating cultural artifacts and hip hop to say, I can get with these things because this is truth, but this is where they're misdirected and I'm not going to follow them to their idols. Instead, I want to redirect so people will see the beauty and glory of Christ 
that it's unparalleled, it's unprecedented, and it's greater than materialism. It's greater than greed. It's greater than sexual pleasure. It's greater than a full stomach. It's greater than fentanyl. It's greater than prestige. It's greater than followers on social media. It's greater than a platinum plaque. And then we begin to see the smoke in the mirrors of the industry. We begin to see the evil that takes place, not just, quote unquote, in the secular industry, but also that coexists in the, quote unquote, Christian industries as well. Because mm. not everyone that proclaims Christ artistically is a genuine, regenerate follower of Christ. And that's even something that we've kind of witnessed, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, people no longer uh, affiliating with Jesus. Uh, but early on in their, you know, faith proclamation time, there was a steady flow of revenue. But when that steady flow of revenue stopped, not all, but some now began to proclaim and profess, uh, you know, I'm no longer with Christ. And that's not just in the spectrum of hip hop. This is all through out any type of uh, components of marketplace ministry, if you will. So as I'm seeing that, I see another generation that is looking to communicate in the same medium, but in a different cadence, a different beat selection. And so what I want to do is the best I can to come to them like an OG, a big homie, a veterano, if you will, and just say, hey, let's make sure the technical precision is there. Let's make sure the content is there. And I do the same with my kids. When they listen to music, I'm listening to it with them. I'm taking a different approach. Uh, my wife and I are than what our parents took. Our parents took that staunch, sacred, secular divide. And they were like, no secular music in the house. Only when it came to rap. But when it came to oldies, uh, when it came to soul music, I mean, my favorite singer of all time is Sam Cooke. So when it when it comes to those components, it was like, oh, no, 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 but that's cool. I'm like, well, hold on, time out. Like, hold on, you said that we shouldn't. I'm like, and every time they talk about romance in the 50s and 60s, like low key, that's talking about sex. So I'm like, it's just said in a different way back then. So as I began to hear, that's when my parents were like, oh, you're actually listening to the words. And I'm like, of course I am. I appreciate the music and, and, and the sonic melody of it. But I also listen to the lyrics and, and I'm like, I'm listening. So when they began to realize, oh, you're actually listening to the substance. I didn't say, oh, I just like you for the beat. No, I, I actually listen to Tupac. I listen to Nas. I listen to Wu-Tang. Like, I listen to these dudes because before I was saved, I would communicate that they say what I don't know how to say, but how I feel. Mm. And even though we come from a different lived experience, I, I didn't grow up in Queens. I didn't grow up in Baltimore and Marin County like Pac did. I didn't grow up there, but they would talk with their sociological analysis using categories that kids like me understood. And it transcended ethnicity. It transcended culture and socioeconomics because it was common shared human themes of experience. And then I began to say they are successful evangelists for their cause. They are successful evangelists for their labels. They're successful evangelists for their neighborhoods. And they might not, they might not even live that lifestyle anymore, but the way that they're telling the story is believable. And so I was like, how can we as genuine regenerate followers of Christ do something amazingly the same artistically, but not compromise the message of the one that called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? How can we be his microphone to amplify his word, but then trust him to be the big God that he is to do the work that we can't do? And that's regenerate the heart of the listener. So I think all those components are kind of wrapped up in the beautiful story of hip hop and our approach as followers of Christ that grew up in environments that that was the cadence of our formation in, in our physical, relational, you know, uh, educational aspects in life growing up. And I think it's something that we can contribute to in a way that is healthy, in a way that affirms truth, 
but also redirects sinners away from idols to our gorgeous risen Lord. Mm. Damon, you have taken us on a cultural survey. I mean, the landscape that you have just covered, ranging from Tupac to Christian <laughs> theologians to urban ministry to what's happening in American history. Um, and clearly, you are a man of boundless energy. So, <laughs> as, as we draw this to a close, I want to ask the question, what keeps you grounded? Mm. You know, the way that uh, God had blessed the Apostle Paul in Second um, Corinthians 12 with whatever the thorn in his flesh was, I praise God that and his genius, he didn't give us specifics because I know me and I'd be like, well, this is how Paul dealt, dealt with it. I don't know what it was. But what I do know is that um, the way that my brain is wired um, because of the fall, I'm susceptible to all expressions of fallenness, death, decay, disease. Um, but I think what the Lord uses as a thorn in the flesh is really like a thorn in the head. Um, I've been diagnosed with severe ADHD, um, diagnosed with severe anxiety disorder, major depression disorder. I have something called Erland syndrome where uh, different types of lighting, artificial lighting triggers my mood disorder um, because of some brain damage I have on the left side of my brain. And so these aspects, when I got the diagnosis, began to give me categories and language to understand the bout that has been going on in my head for my whole life, as long as I can recall. And then lived experiences with death um, has also shown me that uh, losing so many friends to gun violence before I even graduated from high school, family members, uh, like in the last couple of years, losing both of my parents, losing my mother-in-law, uh, and just literally over the weekend, um, thinking that my brother was going to pass away as well. He was in critical condition for 72 hours. It just all these things. I realized that the Lord has uh, provided me with opportunities to realize my humanity and to not downplay it and over-spiritualize language, but to have my hope in the hands of my Savior and with my best friend, my wife, Alicia, of 20 years that I met you know, when I was nine and she was seven, doing evangelism together in the projects with our families. Before we even knew Jesus, we were preaching the gospel to people in the projects. Um, that reality is, I remember where I came from. I remember going without, I remember the drive-bys in the neighborhood. I remember living one house away from the dope house. I remember the gangs. I remember getting jumped for wearing the wrong color. I remember what it is to be hungry so that no matter where the Lord may open a door, I feel like, he is always going to provide opportunities for me to realize I never should boast in myself because everything I have from the very breath that I breathe to opportunities to even answers to prayer that Jesus said no to has all been gifts from the hand of God who gives perfectly timed gifts, including my wife and my kids. So if I'm aware of my humanity and I'm comfortable in it, then my wife will be comfortable with my humanity. So she feels the freedom to call my flesh out. My children feel the freedom to call my flesh out when I have an attitude, when I approach them disrespectfully. So when I walk in that environment and I seek to also open my life to other brothers in my local church that I love and I want them to know the real me, that's what keeps me grounded. Having coworkers 
at CBU where I serve at, like, and, and they know my life and, and, and they're involved in my life and they care for me and I care for them. Like it's real relationships with real people because we serve a real savior that is doing real sanctification in all of us. That's what helps keep me grounded. And so as I get older, I'm learning to rest more. I'm learning to be slower in my impulsive responses. And that's because of the wisdom and the and the seasoned saints that God has put in my life that not just remind me, of, remind me of my humanity, but they remind me of the growth and the maturity that Jesus is producing in and through me. And so um, I, I, I praise God that, that I have people like that in my life that can say, hey, you're doing well here, but you need to stop from this and, and, and begin to concentrate on this. And and I praise God that he, he, he's given me those voices that, that echo his truth when I need to hear it, um, when I'm being stubborn and don't want to hear it in my private time with, with the Lord. Mm. You have brought us to a real place of need and of transformation. Our guest on today's conversation has been D.A. Horton. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, thank you, Damon. Thank you. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.